Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing other themes, such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, light-hearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's episode of the Fitness Fertility Podcast, I am delighted to welcome Kate Please to the show. Kate is a fellow member of the Pro Fertility team, and she has been a senior women's health nurse since 2007, and she specialises in fertility and the menopause. She spent six years working at a leading IVF clinic before working independently. She's a registered nurse with the NMC and is an active member of a number of organisations, including the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology and the British Fertility Society. Kate has a vast experience in supporting women throughout their fertility journey, with a special interest in working with people experiencing low ovarian reserve premature menopause and ectonation. She continually updates her skills and knowledge, having recently completed an MSc in reproductive medicine and is working towards her PhD, focusing on primary ovarian insufficiency. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Kate, could we jump straight in? Would you mind telling us a little bit about your story and how you ended up doing what you do? Yeah, so I've worked in the area of women's health and fertility pretty much since I qualified as a nurse way back in the day before iPhones came on the scene in uh, (laughs) 2007. I worked initially in um, gynaecology and early pregnancy and then happened to see an advert for a job working in fertility and thought, "Mm, I'd like to give that a go because I can remember seeing a programme in the 90s um, about it and thinking, wow, that's really exciting. And I kind of went from there. And I often say when you start um, as a nurse or a healthcare professional in the uh, world of fertility, you often feel like you've been in a spin dryer on a backward cycle (laughs) because it's very, very different from um, other jobs that you'll do. Your patients are predominantly fit and well in terms of they're not in hospital for illnesses as such, but you're working with a key group of patients whose ultimate goal is to do everything they can to try and have a family. So you're supporting them uh, on a range of steps in that journey. The role working in fertility nursing offers a lot of um, opportunities for advancing in different skill sets. Um, So I was really lucky. I worked at a couple of clinics. I learned to scan. I was able to support patients all the way through the journey working in different areas, fertility, recovery, theatres, consultations. And then I extensively worked in egg donation, running a multi-site egg donation program for many years, which was a really rewarding part of the journey. I then decided to work independently, which led me to um, undertaking private consultation support advice and um, working with other organisations to train and offer support. So I'm really lucky that I get lots of options. And I now also teach at Dublin City University, helping to educate nurses in women's health. And you'll be pleased to know we cover a lot on fertility, which is great. That is awesome. And also, just as a little aside, Roshan will be delighted uh, because (laughs) she will love that that is where you are working. Now, that's amazing. It sounds like 
firstly, you are incredibly well qualified and, and have a... Depends on the day. <laughs> we, we have those days. Sounds like you have a whole wealth of experience. And what I love about your story is you've kind of seen both ends of the equation, if that makes sense. And that I can imagine is only a massive advantage to all the women you're helping because you you see the whole picture holistically. Now, bear with me if this is a bit of a of a silly question, but for our listeners in particular who are new to their fertility journey and maybe they haven't come into contact with a clinic yet or a fertility nurse, could you just give us a little rundown of the types of things you would do day to day and maybe what our listeners would expect should they interact with you? So when you're having treatment at a clinic, your fertility nurse is kind of the go-to from most points. We're normally there for you at all stages of your treatment. So we might be there at the beginning when you're having a consultation with the doctor. You then often have a consultation with us where we'll go through things with you. We'll check things. You might need blood tests. We'll do those with you. Obviously, then when you're going through treatment, it's often us that you'll talk to um, for planning your treatment. And in fertility, we love to make plans and schedules and tell you what you'll be taking and when you're in, even in fact, when your next period will be. And it often feels like we're telling you all the things you need to know. So we're often planning your treatment and supporting you. And we're often teaching you how to use the medications in your treatments at various points. And then when you're coming in for appointments during your cycle, um, you might be having scans or blood tests. It's often us that you might see for that. And it's often us that you'll talk to. And then we're still there when you're coming in for your egg collections um, and your embryo transfers or other procedures in theatre. And then obviously a really important part after that is that we support you after that's taking place, whether you're recovering from a procedure or you're waiting um, in your two-week wait for your pregnancy test or whatever the outcome is, we're supporting you at every step. So it's very hard to get away from us, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually just um, written in my notes, you are an incredibly important person and you're basically the fertility BFF. It sounds like you are the person that's there. I'm imagining sometimes quite literally holding the person's hand and you're guiding them all the way through from start to finish. I was also wondering when you were mentioning that you are usually there with the the doctor's appointments. I know sometimes with all due respect to doctors, it's like they're speaking in a different language. So are you one of the people that is able to decode this mystifying language for the people that are there? Is that one of the things you do? It is, and you'll be pleased to know we've we've passed years of training to be able to decode some of these lovely long words that we love in medicine that we like to reel out that, you know, we've said it, we think, wow, we must sound really important. But actually, that's one of the most important things things that we do um, is actually getting all of that information, because often as a patient, you'll get all of this information, there'll be lots of big words and lots of things, and you'll say yes, and you'll nod your head because you'll think, I'll keep nodding, I'm not quite sure what that is, but we'll just keep powering through, it'll all make sense at the end, go with it and then obviously you kind of come out of the consultation and think whoa what did we just say so having a sympathetic ear that can pitch things at your level and that's something that I think we do very well as nurses is we're able to communicate and we're able to make our patients feel comfortable whatever level they feel they want to be at we help you understand that process and we give you a safe space to ask questions because nine times out of ten you never think of the question when the doctor's sat there in front of you it'll be later on. I love this idea of a safe space because it's incredibly overwhelming when you're receiving this information. And what I've learned from my own experience and from speaking to so many of the women I work with is you go into an appointment expecting one thing to happen and then boom, you get hit with this other thing that, and you quite possibly didn't even know it existed, you know, being told that your test results are X or your test results are Y. So it must be incredibly reassuring to have someone like you there with them. 
And I'm really glad you're there because it's an incredibly important job. You touched on helping women through all of these procedures. In terms of how to manage the realities of fertility treatment, so for example, most of our listeners are going to be using injections at some point, taking injections. What pieces of advice could you give people that they can really go away and, you know, implement immediately? So a few easy wins if we just focus on um, injections. Um, it's very easy for us as healthcare professionals to take it for granted because we're very used to injections. And we kind of have to take a step back and say, well, remember what it was like on your first day when they, you know, you got given an injection or you got told to draw up medication, as they call it, which means that unfortunately in some medications the injection doesn't come in the lovely pre-filled pen that we all secretly really love and we do <laughs> so you have to go old school and you might have a vial of powder and a, and a vial of water so it's quite complicated and when I think back to the first time I did it as a student um, in the early noughties I can remember having my whole face covered in antibiotic where it sprayed all over me and it had this unique <laughs> smell that smelled a little bit like the cat litter tray and you kind of had it left on your face You'll be pleased to know that most fertility drugs don't have that odour, but I kind of keep that in my mind to remember that this is what it feels like if you've never had anything to do with anything medical before and you're, and you know, you're presented with a whole array of different medical devices or equipment. So first of all, take a step back. Second, it's really easy to grab all the information, leaflets and links and go, yes, yes, I will read those. And then all of a sudden, day one arrives when you've got to start injecting and you're there and you think, oh, so before you do anything, just remind yourself, go back to your link, whether they've sent you a link, because obviously now when we first started years ago, we had information leaflets, but now we have links to videos, links online to information. Go back to your link, first of all, and just remind yourself what it is you're doing. Also check your treatment plan. Make sure you know what dose you're doing. Even if you've done it before, trust me, sometimes your brain can play tricks on you when you're having all of these drugs. So go back, double check. And then take a deep breath before you start, because often it's a bit of a scenario where you think, well, I'll just do it as quickly as possible. And once it's done, that's it. But take a deep breath before you start. And then second, if it's something that you've got to make the equipment up, get everything ready in front of you on the table. Don't have it all in different directions. I think doing injections are one of the only time I'm actually organised. So you'll have everything <laughs> on the table in front of you, what you need. Dial up your dose if you've got a super pen or make it up in whatever way that the staff have advised or your information sheet is telling you, and then get straight in there. Doing your first injections like driving a car when you've passed your driving test. No one can tell you what it's like when you're in the car on your own without an instructor, but once you're out there for that first time, it's a huge hurdle to climb. So once you've done it, no matter how it went, you've done it. Give yourself a big pat on the back. And not every injection goes to plan. Trust me, even as a nurse, hundreds of thousands of injections I've done, there'll be somewhere I think, oh, that wasn't one of my better ones. But as long as you've got the drug in, that's fine. Get get the drug in, follow your steps, have your cotton wool to hand so you can press on it afterwards. And you'll find that most patients get their own routine, whatever that is, when they do their injection. They used to have one patient that used to light a candle. I thought that was a lot of effort, but it helped her feel comfortable. Another patient always wore the same pyjamas. So get into your own routine. And then once you have done it, if you've got questions, you know who you're going to call afterwards. It's going to be your, uh, as you said, your BFF, your fertility nurse friend the following day or whenever it is, and then grab on the phone and ask us questions because we really don't mind. You know, patients will say, oh, there was a tiny bit of air. What should I do? Or they'll say there's a little bit of liquid coming out afterwards or there was this or was that. We've seen it before. We're here to help. Mm, I think that's amazing. One of the things I'm really interested in what you said is this idea of, you know, people lighting a candle or wearing the same pyjamas. 
And it's something we've looked at a little bit before. It's this idea of rituals, helping people to feel safe. It's this idea of luck. You know, we, I think lots of people know about going to the McDonald's fries (laughs) after they've had, you know, there is no way that is medically sound, but everybody does it anyway, or wearing the socks, you know. And I think it's the, the psychology of helping yourself to feel safe, controlling the things you can control. Yeah. Because it's so hard, isn't it? And you're at the front end of this, but I think anything that can help someone feel like they are doing all the things must just be very reassuring for people when they're in that situation. Absolutely. And and we don't always realise as um, healthcare professionals that we do we are taking a lot away from patients. You know, we're telling you when we want you to see you. We're telling you what we want you to take. We're telling you to phone us when you start your period. So actually, if that tiny little thing makes you feel better or you feel more reassured, and it's not something that's going to, you know, interfere with you or your treatment. If you want to wear those pyjamas, you wear those pyjamas. Yeah, we support you. We're speaking really nicely about the advice of laying all the, the things out in front of you, having your cotton wool ready to press. Now, one of the things we've been looking at is if you are in work, do you have any advice for anyone listening? How can they navigate this? It's a really difficult one. The positive thing to say is that things are changing. When I first started years ago, um, there weren't many patients that told their employers, you know, they were rushing off to scans in their lunch break or they were creating all these diversions and different ways to to navigate their fertility journey um, and treatment. And having, you know, having a cycle of IVF is already a full-time job and then you're doing another full-time job in your day job. It's an awful lot. So it's good to hear now that there are more and more patients that are um, talking to their employers, finding out what options are available to support them. So I think that's the first step. It could even be asking if there's a a safe private space that you could use because there's nothing worse than trying to do an injection in the toilet. I mean, I I can only picture it. Um, It must be extremely difficult. Also, if you're having to refrigerate any of your medication, you've got that to consider. So there are quite a few practicalities. Obviously, some simple solutions might be, are there, if you are being open with your employer, are there any changes in your hours that mean you wouldn't have to take your medication to work in the first place so that you could do it at home? If not, um, being open and finding, are there any support systems in terms of storing your medication, a safe place to go where you can do the injection? Or if you feel that that's not something that you can do at this point, obviously then um, looking at what you can do in terms of could you do the injection at another time? Could you speak to the clinic for more help or advice? Are there any other ways of doing it apart from injection? A lot of the time there isn't, but you never know. For example, some drugs can be in a nasal spray, which is a little bit easier to do. So it's definitely worth just asking the question and just finding what the options are. Do you have any advice on how someone can have a successful relationship with their clinic just to get the most out of their fertility treatment? So I think the first thing is being open on what works for you. So an example could be that you might say to your clinic, look, for me, it's really much easier if um, you could give me a call about any changes in my treatment after 4pm when I'm not in a meeting or I'm not at work. So I find a lot of patients are quite open in terms of when they want me to contact them or how they want me to contact them. Because some patients will say, look, it's probably easy if you just ping me an email. I don't need to talk in, in the office. I can read the email and I can ping you a response and then or I can reply and say, I'm going to go downstairs and call you. So I think finding that preferred method of contact and when you want that contact is probably option one. And the second thing is 
if something's upsetting you as a patient, sometimes it's human nature. Oh, well, I won't say anything because I don't want to upset the apple cart or maybe the staff won't want me to come for the next appointment. But if if it's something that's upsetting you, don't be afraid to talk to us um, because it might be something that we can resolve really quickly for you. It could be something, oh, you know, I, I can't get parked when I visit the clinic or I'm not sure where such and such is or I'm not sure how to do this. So it could be something that we could talk to you about, something that we can give you extra information or support. So I think that second option is don't hesitate to ask us questions or tell us things either that are going well or not so well because we might be able to help and support And fundamentally, if things do happen that you don't expect, we will be here to support you. We can't always change the outcome, but we can support you and we can help you plan a way forward. And I think just having a sounding board, people just want to feel heard, don't they? And one of the things that I I know, again, from working with clinics and going through my fertility journey is things like, let's say parking, okay? To a lot of people, it might not seem like a big deal. But when you are in the middle of a fertility journey, when you are dosed up to the eyeballs on hormones, when you are already five years in under excruciating stress, you've nipped out on your lunch break, parking matters. Therefore, it is really important to speak to you. So communicate, communicate with the clinic. Absolutely. That is the key factor. Communicate, communicate, communicate. And we we do understand a lot of us like you have lived experience of this, but also we've looked after many patients. So we've got a little bit of an idea of what strategies and what answers and support systems we can put in place for you. On that note, one of the things that I know is really difficult is for people to self-advocate. And I'm really interested, actually, Kate, in your role on this, because I kind of see you as the middle person. Self-advocating is hard at the best of times. You know, in all the fertility podcasts and in our shows, we talk about it a lot because you must be in the situation where sometimes a patient doesn't like the plan that's laid out before them. Maybe they're not a fan of the protocol. Maybe they've done two rounds of IVF and they want to switch things up. And the doctor says, hell no, we're not switching it up. So could you offer some much needed advice on how to kind of self-advocate and manage this quite interesting patient-doctor relationship? So as nurses, we're in a really key role. It is part of our code of conduct of registration that we do advocate for patients. So that doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with everything the patient says, but it means that, as you said, we're very much that middle ground where we might listen to both sides of the story as such. Because there's often good intentions on both sides. Um, You know, we're we're not blaming um, clinicians, but sometimes the doctor might say, look, this is the protocol or this is the option that's going to give you the most success. And then the patient on the other side is saying, well, I've done that five times. So, you know, (laughs) how is that going to change this time? And, you know, they're both valid questions and responses. But I think as nurses, we're really good at communicating with our patients. We're very good at listening to them. And sometimes having an independent person like a nurse who's able to advocate for you and say, well, doctor, you know, it's a great idea, that protocol, but actually, you know, let's think about it from the patient. The poor patient's already done this five times. So it's only natural that they're going to be, you know, clutching and and wanting to know if there's something else they can do, if there's something that they've missed. You know, do we need to go back and explain the journey to the patient or explain the rationale? Or has there been any new research we could share? Because as we know, there's so many different pathways and different options in fertility. It can be a bit of a rabbit warren sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And again, it's amazing that you're there. Be there kind of fertility BFF and to navigate that quite difficult grind because everybody's busy. The doctors are busy, the patients are busy, you're busy. So it's really nice to have you there. And I'm sure people find it really reassuring as well, just to have a friendly face that can kind of be the go-between. The patient doesn't want to feel like a number. They want to feel like a person. 
And that's always been something in my own practice. Sometimes when you have lots of patients, it's very hard to remember all of them. My approach is that you don't want that patient to ever feel like they were a number. They were a person and they were on their journey. And our job is to support that. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that you mention is this idea of bringing about the most success. Because, you know, if anyone is going to have to go through IVF, we all very much hope it's one cycle and then you're done. And unfortunately, we know that that isn't always the case. Quite often, people are just really keen to find out what can I do? What can I do to try and make this next cycle the one or to increase my chances? So as someone that is there day in, day out, what advice would you give? What types of things can people do to try and improve their chances with IVF? I would first of all say keep it simple. We're very, very fortunate that there's a wealth of information and options out there. And as we've talked about earlier, sometimes the control thoughts are in our head. We think, oh, if we take this supplement or we do this, we're, we can be in, you know, be part or, can, or in control of it. But the first option is definitely keep it simple and look back to um, those things that you can control that make a big difference. So a lot of patients will say to me, oh, why do you always ask me about diet and lifestyle on a consultation? Because those are little things that come together to make a big difference. So we're not expecting, um, you know, to be carbon copies that, you know, I'm eating spinach all day. We, we are <laughs> expecting things in moderation. As nurses, we're realists. We're expecting things in moderation. But if there's small things that you can change, so you might prioritize yourself, prioritize your sleep and your self-care time. If you've done all those important things already, not smoking, not drinking alcohol, you've ticked those boxes, great. Are you able to get out and, and exercise? You know, I haven't been to the gym this past couple of weeks. I've been busy doing um, PhD work. But can you get some time to exercise? Can you get some time with whatever support system you have, family, friends, going out with a dog? Because all of those little things are really important of coming together to make a big difference. A lot of patients do ask about supplements and some of those have value in place. But talk to your clinician or, or nurse before starting anything because you want to make sure that you've got the right evidence and information to make an informed decision so that that way you're not buying lots and lots of different things, coming in with a coach load of things and you're not sure which one's going to make a difference. Talk to us first and we can guide and support you. I love this idea of keeping it simple. Just the simple things, getting your steps in, going out for a walk. I love the idea of going out with your dog because A, you're outside and B, dogs help you feel better. It's science. It has been proven. It releases oxytocin. So have a cuddle with your dog. But these things legitimately do help. And like you said, it's just like a little bit of the puzzle that comes together to try and support you on the overall picture. And anything that's good for mental health, because mental health takes such a hit on this journey, um, I think anything that supports mental health is is massive. So very, very keen for everyone to take on board your advice there. One of the things you also mentioned was um, your PhD. Now, I am very excited to talk to you about this. <laughs> As if you're not busy enough, you thought, you know, I'll just I'll just throw a PhD in there, you know, just, just for a little bit of fun. But um, it's incredible. Could you tell us the general idea behind your PhD and then I'm sure I will uh, fire some questions at you? Well, it all started when I'd finally finished my master's because um, I thought it would be great to do a master's in COVID whilst working. Why not? You know, just <laughs> add the challenge in even more. So I finally finished my master's. I'd had I'd done the first year and I'd had a couple of years off with various things that were happening. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to finish this. So I finished it. And I was, I was so excited that I'd finished it that I had this inclination that I'd sign up for a PhD. I can't really recommend that to listeners, if I'm honest. Stop. Have a break. <laughs> don't do it. Um 
I joined the Centre for Reproductive Research in De Montfort University in Leicester because I really, really liked their centre, their approaches. And I thought, wow, I get to meet a whole group of researchers and academics who all they study is reproduction. This is like, you know, my, my world's just suddenly got so much bigger. I chose the particular area which is premature ovarian insufficiency or premature menopause before the age of 40 because I think it was something I kept in the cupboard in my brain and parked for years when I worked on um, egg donation. I run it with a colleague who I refer to as my work wife and mm-hmm. we split the donors and recipients. So I, she would look after the donors and I would look after the recipients. And I met a lot of ladies who had experienced POI, so they had premature menopause and they were waiting for donor eggs. I had the privilege of looking after this group of patients and and talking to these women. And one of the things that struck me was that I didn't feel they had a lot of support from the medical world. Yes, they they had the right medication, but, you know, I'd ask them, when did they last see a specialist or when did they last talk to anyone? And, And they couldn't really tell me. And sometimes we were the only link they had. And I kind of parked that and thought, wow, that's really interesting. And then obviously when I'd had this epiphany that, you know, of course I could do a PhD. Why not? Doesn't everyone? <laughs> um, yeah, why not do that part time along with everything else? Um, but that was the area that I wanted to look at, both from my personal experience and both because of thinking of those patients and thinking, hang on a minute, these patients have got their own story to tell and maybe it's my job to help them tell it. Yeah, a very organic reason that, you, that you've become involved in this. So correct me if I'm wrong. So we're looking at the relationship between Issues with primary ovarian reserve, if I've got that right, which then ties into this idea of premature menopause, which ultimately can lead into the egg donation route. Have I got that right? And please correct me if I'm wrong there. Kind of. So when we talk about POI, premature menopause, usually um, we're talking about and referring to women who have experienced uh, premature menopause under the age of 40. So that's really important. Often these women are or individuals are experiencing menopause symptoms, but it's very it's it's very different to what we would refer to as menopause at the expected age, which normally happens to women approximately in their late 40s or early 50s. So if we just take some numbers, I'm not a numbers person, but um, research forces you to to look at these numbers. Around one in a hundred women under the age of uh, 40, one in a thousand under the age of 30, and one in 10,000 under the age of 20. So it's much, much rarer the younger you are, but that doesn't mean it isn't possible. So I've seen um, patients who are in their teens. And obviously, the first thing to be clear of is that some patients may go to their GP with symptoms and may be dismissed or offered other treatment because it's a, an unusual condition that not everyone's familiar with. So the road to diagnosis isn't necessarily simple like a lot of other gynecological and fertility conditions. And then from the patient's point of view, the impact of living with a premature menopause and the impact of diagnosis is, is really, really underestimated and important. And this is actually a valuable lesson for healthcare professionals. In some recent research I've been looking at for my PhD, it's actually talking about how we deliver the diagnosis and the impact on the patient. Because potentially these are young women who are given a life-changing diagnosis. And I've had women tell me that they've been told on the phone or by text. And and, and that sort of makes me go even more redder than I am now. So <laughs> it gets us thinking as healthcare professionals, you know, what training and information do we need to support when we're giving patients information and news like this? And then from the patient's point of view, um, it's a multifactorial condition. You've got the symptoms of menopause, which could be There's over 36 different symptoms, actually, but we'll talk about key things that listeners may have heard of, hot flushes, um, cognitive symptoms, um, vaginal dryness. But the key one with POI is infertility. 
So patients may present, they may have been trying to conceive, often they may have stopped long-term contraception, they may be then trying to conceive and then they may experience a diagnosis after they've not become pregnant and they then approach their healthcare provider or fertility clinic for further tests. So there's a bit of a variation. But what we do know is that some patients, it can be genetic. There's a small amount of patients, it could be autoimmune or caused by infection. But actually, the majority of women, it's idiopathic, which is a really fancy medical word of saying we don't actually know the underlying cause. Mm. So it's a little bit like unexplained fertility. It's that um, wording and diagnosis that you've got this diagnosis, but we don't know exactly why it happened for you. Wow. I mean, there's so much here to unpack. I think it could be like three other shows. And for the record, I would love that. Okay, That would be incredible. I love that you're looking at how to break the news to patients. And it reminded me actually of um, one of our other guests, Andrea Trigo, who was on the show. And, yeah, I know and Andrea very well. She's fantastic. She yeah, is. I love her amazing um, guest for the show. So obviously, you know her story as well. And I appreciate her story doesn't revolve around early menopause necessarily, but she found out at a very, very young age, didn't she, that um, she was told she wouldn't be able to have children. And that's what it reminded me of when you were explaining this and the, the trauma. And again, there's lots of research around the trauma of a diagnosis of infertility for whatever the reason is. And I was also staggered by the numbers you gave. Are the rates of early menopause becoming higher? Are, are more people being diagnosed with early menopause or have I got that completely wrong? No, not at all. Um, I recently read some research that um, a value colleague had actually shared, and we thought that the prevalence of POI, so um, menopause before the age of 40, was around 1% in the population. But recent research has suggested, and I, I, I was so shocked, I, I put it on my Instagram because I wanted people to know that it could be as high as 3 or 4%. So the first thing I thought was, wow, that's a big difference from 1 to 3. Mm. And then the second question I had was, well, why? And when they've looked at that, obviously there are more patients having um, treatment for cancer, which un unfortunately can cause premature menopause and, and surgery that may be putting them into premature menopause, such as downregulation, treatment for endometriosis, etc. But actually, they also theorise that more patients are coming forwards because we're getting more awareness out there and diagnosis, which I think is a really positive thing in a way. If you in any way suspect that this might happen to you, before you get to it, what can people do to try and preserve or support their fertility? So the first thing is having that we've talked about it already, that open line of communication. One of the first questions I'll ask a younger individual who might be presenting with possible POI is, do you have any family history? Because we know that's actually really important. There's a significant likelihood that if you have a family history, that that could impact on you, particularly on the maternal line. So mothers, cousins, sisters, grandparents. And it wasn't really something that we talked about in the past. So sometimes I'll speak to um, women and they'll say, I don't know because nobody talked about it, which is a really fair answer. Mm. But if you know you've got that in your history, talk to your um, relatives, your family members, find out what their journey was, what age it was, was for them and what information. So the first thing is that data gathering. Get as much information as possible so that you kind of can make your decision on where you want to go or what you want to do next. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And you and I are both working with the pro fertility team. And what I love about the work they're doing is they are intentionally trying to work with a younger community because of this very reason, really. What we're trying to do is get the message out there that 
Unfortunately, the clock is ticking. So it's really important to kind of do this, you know, physical MOT to try and figure out where your fertility status is at whilst you are young enough to then go on and do something about it. Within your role in the pro-fertility team, like what kind of work are you doing within that space? So I think the first thing is education, because we might not be able to change um, the journey, but we might be able to help you on the journey. So we've talked about family history, but also education. Um, we know we've got really good evidence that tells us that not all individuals are aware about the impact of fertility and age. Um, we're also aware that that's a big impact in healthcare professionals. So that's the first important aspect is education. And it doesn't need to be lots of highly complex papers. It's actually just getting out there, answering questions, being visible and telling people the information in, in, a, in a proactive way that there's something that they can actually take away from that. Mm. And then it's directing them to what they need to do next, because it's all very well me saying, oh, you have a family history of POI, but the patient will be thinking, what does that mean for me? Where do I go next? So it's actually being able to signpost them and support them to the right place to go next, you know, what the next expectations are likely to be. Mm. One of the things I've learned with working with so many women is that even on paper, if their story looks the same, everybody's different. Yes. And sometimes I'm really staggered by everybody is unique. They're not just a number. They don't want to feel like a number. And what I love about the pro-fertility team is there is an expert for everything. There's people like you and me, there's nutritionists, there's doctors. It's a really fantastic team. So I guess if any of our listeners are on the younger side and they are perhaps thinking about the fertility or they're just getting into the trying to conceive journey, I would strongly suggest that they hop over to the pro-fertility site or get in touch with me or you because you know, it's just good to be prepared. And why not? Why not know what's going on with your body so that if there is anything going on that that is perhaps not ideal, we can take action now and we can do as much as we can to preserve your fertility moving forward. And I think it's having that team approach um, because sometimes, you know, we are specialists in certain areas in our own right, but actually it's having a team and a collaborative approach because you might say, oh, I've got this patient and I'm not sure about X. And you might talk to another member of the team and then you say, oh, what are your thoughts on that? I think a team approach is incredibly valuable in supporting a patient. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. I just want to say a heartfelt thank you for coming on. Your knowledge is incredible and you've given lots and lots of takeaways for our listeners as well today. I particularly enjoyed the advice around working with a clinic. I genuinely think that was really, really helpful. So if people want to follow up with you and, you know, find you, which they absolutely should, where's the best place for people to find you? Probably on my Instagram, which I'm getting a lot better at, which is <laughs> fertility underscore menopause underscore support. We will link to that in the show notes, but please hop over, give Kate a follow. Um, she just knows so much information. So Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. What Kate does not know about <laughs> fertility isn't worth knowing. She knows so much information. Like I follow her on Instagram and she's just fantastic. She's an amazing source of support. So I would definitely hop over and uh, give her a follow. And if you can recommend to a friend, pass it on. Maria, to whom are we speaking to next week? In next week's show, we have on another of the Pro Fertility team and this time a fellow Scot. So I am delighted to be welcoming Jen on the show. Jen is a fertility nutritionist, 
we are going to talk about this idea of when those little treats that we have, you know, when we just treat ourselves, when they become habits and what can we do to try and help us through this difficult time. So it's going to be brilliant. So make sure you tune in. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week. And please rate, comment, and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and they may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.